Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Israel Studies, part of the New Books Podcast Network. I'm Yaakov Yadgar, and today we're talking to Peter Bergamin about his new book, The Making of the Israeli Far Right, Abba Achimeir and Zionist Ideology. The book is an intellectual biography of one of the most important propagators of the maximalist revisionist stream in Zionist ideology. The book positions Achimeir within the context of the Israeli right and the Zionist movement in general, and corrects some common misunderstandings surrounding the man and his ideology. Peter Bergamin, uh, congratulations on the publication of the book and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Yaakov. I guess uh, the, the obvious point to begin is to ask you to please remind our audience uh, who Abba Achimeir was in the first place. With pleasure. So Abba Achimeir, in a way, stood at the, the vanguard of Zionist anti-British resistance, um, Already in the late 1920s, he was referring to the British mandatory government as with you know, perfidious Albion and a foreign occupier, quite a strong uh, contention. And the, in 1930, he founded the first anti-British resistance group, although it was still a group of civil disobedience and not, say, military or active disobedience in the Jewish community, the Yeshuv in Palestine. Um, and in 1934, was finally arrested for belonging to this group. And, and this is really... He, uh, the, the jail sentence that he received uh, for belonging to this group was what cut short his political career. Um, he was born in 1897 and uh, kind of very serendipitously, serendipitously, or so, luckily, we can stop there and do that again. Sorry. Um, so uh, Achimer was actually born Abba Haisinovich on the 2nd of November in 1897, which is if you think about it, it's 30, 30 years to the day before the issuing of the Balfour Declaration. So perhaps it was Beshert <laughs> that he would grow up to be a Zionist nationalist. Um, he was born in, in White Russia and grew up in Bobruisk, like uh, Chaim Olosarov, which is quite interesting. Uh, his father, also like Olosarov, was a, a, a very affluent timber merchant. Um, he reached, you know, he went to Russian school in the day and Hebrew school in the evening. He really had a Zionist education and a Hebrew education from the earliest age. And really, when he was uh, 14 years old in 1912, he asked his parents, uh, this young kid, if he could go to study at the New Herzliya Gymnasium in Tel Aviv. And they let him, I mean, which is quite bizarre to me. He went, the 14-year-old boy with his 16-year-old sister as the chaperone, you know, they took how many sh- ships must have they need to take in those days to get to Ottoman Palestine. And uh, he studied there for two years. He went back in 1914 to visit his parents for the summer. And then, of course, the war broke out. So he was forced to remain in Russia um, for an extended period of really 10 years. Um, and in that time, his own brother was killed during the Bolshevik Revolution. In, 19, in 1919, uh, the revolution had started two, day, uh, two years before. But uh, anyway, uh, and this death of his brother had a very, very profound effect on Achimeir. In fact, so he changed his name from Haisinovich to Achimeir, so my brother mayor. Um, in 1924, uh, so 1921, he actually he went to Vienna to begin doctoral studies. Uh, and he graduated three years later. 
writing on the conception of Russia in Oswald Spengler's The Decline of the West. And finally, that same year, returned after 10 years to what was now British mandate, Palestine, and began to work as a teacher and a journalist. He belonged to the moderate socialist uh, party, Hapoel Hatzair, which means the young worker. And he wrote to the, in the party journals, as well as other local newspapers. But uh, I, I would say th- very shortly thereafter, by 1926 for sure, was becoming very disillusioned with kind of socialist Zionism, Hapoel Hatzair. And two years later, in 1928, he joined uh, Zev Jabotinsky's revisionist Zionist party. Um, and even then, <laughs> they weren't happy in a way. <laughs> um, a, a year or so later, in, in, the, in the wake of Arab anti-Jewish riots in August 1929, Achmeir, along with his colleagues, Uritri Greenberg, the poet, and, and Yeheshua Yavin, the writer, established what they called the maximalist arm of the revisionist party which was much more extreme than, let's say, the mainstream revisionists. They called for um, uh, you know, military resistance against the British um, and and advocated fascism as kind of a modus operandi. Um, the maximalist in their name refers to their uh, aspirations to rule over the land that was the British mandate, correct? I, I would say, I mean, so did, I mean, in a way, so did Jabotinsky. So it's not such a, you know, Jabotinsky was a territorial maximalist. That was the whole point of the revisionist party. You know, they, Jabotinsky formed the revisionists in 19, well, literally, uh, officially in 1925, but he left the Zionist executive in 1923 when the British partitioned Palestine into Transjordan and then the rest of Palestine. The, the, uh, and so the, uh, Jabotinsky, in his mind, thinking, okay, but all of this land is the traditional, and I say this with quotes, you know, biblical land of Israel, this should all be our land. And and that was the reason for the revisionist party and really the, 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 the catalyst for the beginning of the Israeli right altogether, I would say, even to this day. Um, and so the maximalists were even more maximalist. Um, so they were certainly territorial maximalists, but also ideological maximalists. I think they they saw themselves as radicals in in their in their um, in their attitude towards the British, in their action towards the British, in in the mode, in kind of the ideological um, uh, or in the ideologies they adopted in order to uh, carry out this this activism in every single way. They were maximalists. And as you already noted, they identified as fascists. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, it, I mean, they identified as fascists. But I think one of the re- – and, and certainly to, today in Israel, if somebody says Abba Chimeir, they think of two things. Fascism, <laughs> you know, that was a crazy fascist guy or something like this. Or, and the murder of Chaim Al-Lasarov, for which he was arrested actually, but not uh, not charged eventually. Um, the that my, I, I looked in the book a lot, uh, you know, uh, into Achimer's fascism, and you know, he wrote an article or a series of articles in 1928 in Doar Hayom, the the the, the Daily Mail uh, of, of of Palestine, um, uh, under a, a, a column called "From the Notebook of a Fascist," "Me Pink Social Fascistan," um, and you think, okay. <laughs> he says he's a fascist. I mean, in print and quite openly and quite provocatively. But actually, if you analyze these articles and, in fact, most of his writing, 
there's nothing particularly fascist from an ideological point of view, the way we understand fascism. He just said it, you know, and, and, and it doesn't excuse it. But it, I think it's, it, if, if, if he embraced a fascist ideology at all, and I'm sure he did, it was somebody else's fascism. So more, more along the lines of a Mussolini fascism. But he never, ever really gives a great um, uh, deal of time to some sort of ideological explanation of his own understanding of fascism or how he sees it, um, or how he should, would see it work in the issue of, he just says that, that he thinks it should work or, or should be, be adopted. So I guess uh, with any kind of uh, uh, intellectual biography or monograph on a well, self-proclaimed fascist who is a central figure of an ideology that is, well, highly unpalatable to many, one of the questions the author has to confront is why? What brought you to write it in the first place? I, I, I would imagine there's so much suspicion around such books. Uh, are you trying to rehabilitate him? Are you trying to uh, further smear him right so what i think it's a very, in the first place it's a very good point um i've, I've got to be honest i approached so so, so the, the first time i ever heard the name abba Achimeir was in you know as an undergrad in a history of zionism class and it was just about how Achimeir's writings along with some other people Uri greenberg jonathan ratosh were influential on menachem begin the only reason i chose the essay question i can tell you many years later was because the only name i recognized was menachem begin so i thought okay at least i know somebody in this essay uh, so i started to read for the essay um and i read a book especially by colin schindler called the Z- triumph of military zionism which was quite new at that time and I, it was a, it reads like to me like a little bit like a detective novel. I mean, really interesting to read, and and I got really in, engrossed in the story. But I realized this name Achimeir comes up more and more than anybody else, both kind of in in terms of frequency, but also in terms of importance. He appeared to me to be somebody very important. And Colin, you know, writes about uh, this essay he wrote in 1926 called Megillate Sikrikin, the Scroll of the Sikari. I mean, it has an amazing exotic almost messianic ring to it. And I thought, oh, I would like to read what this says, especially because it was dedicated to Dora Kaplan, who tried to kill Lenin, and, and Charlotte Kodai, who murdered Marat. I thought, this is quite a quite an interesting guy, perhaps, and found there was no translation in English. So I ended up, you know, in my very bad Hebrew in those days, translating it. And, and uh, I thought, you know, this this is kind of interesting. This figure is interesting. I, I, I must say, I'm always drawn to these kind of maybe misunderstood or maybe understood all too well figures but 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 who are not necessarily the mainstream um you know i i and in a way i i always say to you know friends these kind of unsung heroes even if i don't like their song <laughs> but i like i like this idea of you know it doesn't uh, yes i'm yeah. oh, sorry stop there no, no okay. i understand oh, I just, um i'll i'll uh, make a footnote yeah yeah <laughs> yeah uh, so let's talk about his ideology for a second. Um, there are several isms that dominate uh, any discussion of Achimeir. As you already noted in the, your introduction of him, he started basically identifying with the socialist Zionist and ends up very quickly with the far right, uh, with the uh, Jabotinsky's faction. Uh, and uh, the, your book makes it clear that he advocated several ideologies or isms that weren't always consistent with each other. We can you already mentioned fascism. He was a self-proclaimed revolutionary. Uh, primarily, he was a Jewish nationalist. 
initially a socialist and not so much. Can you please explain how these uh, different streams uh, sit in within his ideological world? Sure. Uh, I think what's really interesting, and the first thing you, you touched upon is to this day, I think uh, people think, oh, you know, he was a, socialism, a socialist who jumped ship. You know, they, they defected to fascism. Um, there are a couple of things I'd like to try to nuance more in the book. The first is, of all is that in 1924, And even before that, you know, arriving in Palestine as a young, uh, a young Ole, he ha- there wasn't a revisionist party in 1924. So you were either, you know, you were one, one form of a socialist or a general Zionist, you know, in Central Europe at the, at the Zionist organization, which was, let's say, late, a little more uh, centrist. But that, those were the choices. There was nothing else. Um, the second thing is that if there was any real true socialist in the family, This was his older sister, Bluma, with whom he had traveled to Palestine when he was 14 and she was 16. I think as a 14-year-old, you have a lot of influence by your older sister. And, and I mean, I can't prove any of this, obviously, but I think it's very interesting to remember this, that, you know, he became a socialist at 14. Does that mean you think, you think all of these things through very carefully? Perhaps not. I mean, I'm not sure how much I think through at this stage in my life, <laughs> you know. So I think it's very interesting to bear that in mind. So I don't think there was, a, there was any great jump from socialism. Um, and we must also remember that Hapo, Hapoel Hatzair was really anti-Marxist. You know, they were not a Marxist socialist party. They were a small s moderately socialist party um and so i think all of these things together you know show us that in in his socialism i mean he it was it was the luck of the draw it was his the best possible choice he could make in 1924 as soon as he realized uh, there was another possibility even just a few later years later he changed um so that's the socialist bit the fascist bit i've talked a little bit about already i think you know it's very hard to tell the level Or, the, or certainly the ideological uh, dimension of Achimer's fascism, other than I would say to say that he was really a Mussolini fascist. And I think I can't say more than that because he doesn't give us really much more proof. First of all, he doesn't speak about it ideologically, as I've just mentioned. But more importantly, neither the maximalists nor the revisionists ever came into power. So we have no way of measuring um, what they would have uh, introduced, how they would have introduced it, and to what degree. So I, le- I just put it out there and leave it. I think that's for a reader to make her or his mind up when they, when they look at it. But I do take quite an involved discussion of what fascism is in the first place. And of course, you're probably not surprised as an academic to realize there is in fact no scholarly consensus <laughs> on what, what cons- uh, constitutes fascism, which was more important for me was Achimer's understanding of revolution. Because I think, you know, to say you're a revolutionary is not such a contentious accusation. To say you're a fascist is. So I think over the years, this kind of very contentious accusation of Achimer being a fascist has overshadowed what I think is his really interesting bit, and that's as a, a revolutionary. Um, he, again, he doesn't give us any great ideological um fodder when when he gives us his 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 description of of revolution but he gives us something so in 1927 he wrote an article for haaretz called imanili mili so it's quoting hillel if i'm not for myself who will be for me and he notes there for the first time that revolution is the necessary qu- consequence of what he calls a, a, a necessary imperialist moment that has failed to deliver its utopian promise now that's a very specific 
<laughs> definition of, of revolution. You won't find that in any dictionary. And I'll say it again. He said it was the necessary consequence. Revolution is a necessary consequence of what he calls a necessary imperialist moment that had failed to deliver. That's Now, if you think about that, that's exactly the situation that he found himself in in 1927 vis-a-vis -vis the British. So I think you know, in a very kind of manipulative, perhaps way, he 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 makes his um, his revolutionary ideology um, fit very much to the situation that he was finding himself in at that moment. So, and, who, is um, who is he exactly rebelling against? Is this the British history or? Well, both in a way. So I think this is the really interesting thing for me too. His revolution is kind of, I, I, I wrote an article about, or a chapter in a book, uh, another book about this, but I say, you know, it's a tripartite revolution. It's one against the British very strongly. Um, but then, you know, a revolution has to have a replacement of an, of an ancien regime. The ancien regime in my, in my idea, in my mind, is two parts. There's an ancien regime against the British. Now, of course, in Palestine, they weren't a traditional ancien regime, but they they acted like the Yonsin regime, if that makes sense, right? So, so, so they governed as if they had been, uh, as if they were in England still. And the second part of the Yonsin regime, I would say, is the traditional Zionist labor, Mapai, David Ben Gurion, certainly at that period, um, dominated um, stream of Zionism, which he absolutely rejected. So, in a way, there was a dual Yonsin regime to overthrow, and I think that's it. That I think to look at it this way makes it a little. Well, it's, it's perhaps only academically more interesting, but certainly more interesting. All right, let's let's go uh, back for one moment to the fascist uh, bit again. Yes. To what degree was his fascism basically a focus on the nation state as the solution to to, to the Jewish predicament? I, I think it's absolutely focused on that. I think it's a very good point, Yaakov, that in fact, it was the means to an end for him. The end was the, was the Jewish nation state. So for, 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 you know, for Mussolini, the end of fascism was fascism. You know, that was the, so Achimera was the means to an end. And, and you talked a little bit about before about his, you know, Jewish nationalist or Zionist nationalist. I, I think, it's a very good distinction that you make, and I think I'd like to just uh, sh say that he really was a Zionist, no other type of Jewish nationalist. Um, and I want to read you very quickly what uh, a few lines from an article he wrote in the Mepink Social Fascistan, so from the Notebook of a Fascist, and this is, I think, what makes it clear. He says, to those of us with the viewpoint of a state, no matter what, we need to declare again and again, we are not for the free entrance to the land. And we are not against expulsion from the land. And then he qualifies this by saying, we are not for free entrance of Jews to the land, but only for the free entrance of Zionists. Only Zionists are necessary to us here. And we are not against the expulsion of Mopsim from the land. The Mopsim was the, the, the abbreviation for the Socialist Party. So it's very clear, very clear that he, yeah. <laughs> Very impressive. Now, uh, so uh, let's move on to, I guess, your major argument in the book, or maybe one of the major arguments you make in the book, uh, that has to do with Achimera's ideological formation. You argue that it took place much earlier than previously thought. In a sense, you moved the dial back to his years as a student, and specifically to his engagement with uh, Spengler's ideas in his PhD thesis. Yes. Can you maybe explain this? Maybe first of all, tell us something about the importance of uh, Spengler in the intellectual milieu of uh, Achimeyers? Sure. Uh, well, not just Achimeyers, and that's the interesting thing. Spengler, when it, from 1919 to, say, 1930. 
so let's say 1939, um, was really very big in Europe, uh, in, especially Western Europe. Um, he His book, The Decline of the West, looked at history in a, in a completely new way instead of looking at it teleologically or, you know, with, with a bunch of epochs like ancient, you know, medieval, modern. Spengler instead isolated various cultures in the world, so uh, cultural, you know, cultural cultures, as it were, and gave these some sort of biological lifespan. He said, like everything else in life, a certain culture will have a its own biology of approximately fifteen hundred years, which you could separate, just like humans and everything else, into you know childhood, youth, adulthood, and old age. And at that point, the culture would decline; it was no longer interesting. It would go to sleep, but it would be resurrected at some point a few hundred years later as kind of a variation of itself. I mean, it's obviously a very Hegelian, although it's probably not so obvious. Um, it's also metahistorical, and it's also, um, you know, kind of, let's say, a, a few steps on from Nietzsche. I mean, he got the idea of the metamorphosis from an a, a essay from Goethe, but of course he takes it in a completely different direction. Um, and and Spengler was one of these guys that, you know, probably sat in his room and just read books. And it was, it was in, he was a product of a very certain period in German history um, this kind of man who knew, you know, this meta-historian or, or pseudo-meta-historian, because I think it's impossible to do it. And I think his book reads very impressively, if you can get through it. <laughs> um, but but really, it's it's very, uh, I hate to say nuts, but it's a little bit crazy. It's interesting, but it's it's kind of academically interesting. I think it has no real... Um, you know, real basis. But he had a lot of fans at the time. I mean, everybody from, you know, people like the conductor Furtwängler to Goebbels to, um, you know, Canadian academics, I mean, to Northrop Fry, really big people. So on some level, he, he spoke to people. And I think his book arises in a way out of this need to explain what, what was happening during the First World War when he started writing the book. And certainly by the end, why Germany had lost because they had expected to win the war. Not just that they had lost, but they, they lost a war they had spect- expected to win. And that was was somehow necessary to explain. And perhaps Spengler could only explain it through this meta-historical um, explanation that says it's because our culture is in decline. So what was Achimera's engagement with this argument and why do you find it so central to the formation of his ideology? So what's interesting about Achimeyer is that he doesn't look so much about Spengler. His dissertation is called um, Bemerkungen zu Spengler's Auffassung Russland. So, 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 so comments or, or you know, kind of a discussion on Spengler's concept of Russia in the decline of the West. Now, that's interesting because Achimeyer was Russian and you know, probably a suggested topic by his supervisor. But what's interesting is that he begins his conversation, his, his dissertation, by talking about Jewish history. You know, so although he's talking about Russia and he's talking about how he disagrees with certain details of Spengler's conception of Russia in the decline of the West, in point of fact, every almost everything, if you scratch the surface, is either a metaphor or a veil, a thinly veiled reference to Jewish and or, and or Zionist history, and it's very very interesting. Um, I forgot what I was going to say, so you'll stop. <laughs> we edit this bit, anyways. Um, Hang on one second. What was I going to say? Uh, no, I've lost it. Ah, yes. Okay. Uh, I'll start again. Um, and and so there are two things for me going into this work that, that I bore in mind. And, and re- it was very clear to me very early on that the dissertation on Spengler, although not the world's greatest perhaps academic work, was certainly very important. I saw themes there that were that, that come out 
10 years later that everyone says, oh, you know, this is after he made his great leap from socialism to fascism, right? Well, I'm saying, first of all, they were there before he knew he was either of those things. And I think there's a reason. The reason is his dissertation is written in German. I think so up until now, most historians who write about Achimé are probably either don't speak the don't speak German, so haven't really engaged with the work. And I think the exception here is Jakob Shavit. In his book, he really does seem to have read the dissertation. But it, it's I think it's very, very clear to you know when, when reading many kind of uh, discussions about Achimera to know whether or not people have read either the dissertation or part of the dissertation. I think it was just ignored as a student work. And because it was in German. So I think when I had a look at it, I thought, well, it's really interesting. And I noticed this, this is a conclusion I made almost in the first year of the def- of, of the of my study, that really all of his future, future ideological cornerstones, he talks about youth, um, how he prefers people of action over people of words, you know, this idea of active heroism, uh, rich historical past, which is also important for future fascists, of course, the acceptance of violence, again, I, the same comment, um, and the readiness for self-sacrifice, uh, if it's for the national cause, reject, he rejects Marxism, Bolshevism, socialism, liberalism, and he's uh, kind of preoccupied with revolution already in this in this essay and uh, in in this dissertation. And if you add this together with one article that I found from 1923, and if you don't mind, I'll read his his uh, his his bit from the article. He says, "Today I saw finally a picture of fascists on the cover of an illustrated weekly." In the picture, we see the fascists dressed in black shirts, right arm outstretched, no hats covering their black hair. Some girls fell in love with these youths, with their swift gait and glistening eyes. Is it possible not to become enamored? Youths in black shirts, their eyes glistening with an abundance of faith in these defining moments, their right arms raised at their sides. How could the lassies not fall in love? And the children of Italy have invented for themselves a new game. They play fascists. The little brother emulates the actions of his older brother. The majority of the young ones are without black shirts, but even they are able to raise their right arms. I mean, it's a bit uh, hagiographic. It's 1923, though, and that's the really interesting uh, bit about this. Is this is very early on. So kind of putting that together with, with what I found in the dissertation, I thought, you know, he doesn't really change from any of this stuff after this. He just varies it a little bit or modifies it. So uh, let's move on to his uh, activism, maybe not immediately his ideology, but as, an, as a Zionist activist, as a Zionist leader, Achimei formed the organization you mentioned in the, um, opposing the British uh, mandate uh, called uh, his Hebrew, the Hebrew name of the organization was uh, Berita Birionim. I guess uh, the very translation of the name is a matter of, uh, well, the translator's uh, perception of Achimei. Uh, can you Tell us uh, how you prefer to translate the name and who were those Biryonis in the first time? <laughs> so so I think you're absolutely right. And, and I actually just opened the book to the page with the various translations. I read everything from the Praetorian Guard, the Ruffians, the Palace Guards, the Covenant of the Thugs, the League of the Sicarii, you know, I mean, brother, uh, Brotherhood of Hoodlums, the Union of Zionist Rebels, Covenant of Brigands, the Alliance of Warriors. It's crazy. How I mean, the amount of uh, variety you get of these two little words. Um, it's, it's been suggested to me that so Birion, uh, was certainly um, uh, in in in, a, in modern Hebrew is is kind of very much a thug or a hooligan, somebody who's a little bit um, tough. Um, but there's also another dimension. Uh, you know, first first of all, the ancient Biryanim were certainly 
um, even if you look at the you know the Evan Shoshan dictionary, the Biryon is 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 defined as a terrorist or an aggressive person who rules by force. Um, but uh, I think there's another dimension, and this was suggested to me by 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 a colleague who said you know Biryonim in, inside Biryonim is also the the the, the idea of the Bira. The, the capital, so Jerusalem. So the Birionim are those who kind of guard, who 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 make themselves perhaps responsible for guarding the Bira. Um, so I kind of, with all of these things together, I think it's important to just uh, to understand all of these dimensions when looking at the word. Now, I think Achimeir is a very educated, if not provocative, if not a little bit on the edge uh, kind of guy, probably understood all of these and used all of these in with a little bit of a smile, if you know what I mean. He wanted to be provocative, without a doubt. But to think of it that just as these thugs, I think is also a little bit um, one-sided. I think the bira element is very important. So I would say, you know, the covenant of the garters of the of the, <laughs> the, the I, I don't even know. Um, perhaps um, uh, the, the the palace guards, in a way, kind of works, but it, none of them really work perfectly. So what did they do? What did Brita Birunim were? What were they about? So they were about um, active resistance, but in, they did it in a way that was very. Um, he called it semi uh, semi underground. They weren't completely underground because they protested, but they did not protest as Brita Birunim. So if there was a protest, and and to be clear. Brita Biryanim only undertook acts of civil disobedience. The, the, the more heavier stuff would come with Lehi and the Irgun after where they where it was quite violent. But with Brita Biryanim, so yes. It would be wrong to call them a terrorist organization. We, it would be wrong because we have no proof of anything except acts of civil disobedience. Even the Elazarov murder in which Achimer, for which Achimer was arrested as the brains, um, he was acquitted. So he went to jail not because of the Lazarov murder, but because he belonged to Brita Biryanim, which was an illegal organization for two reasons. It was illegal, A, because it was not registered with the British, so they didn't have a board of trustees. You know, they have to have all these requirements to be an official group. But more important is that they also were found guilty of promoting what they call seditious literature. So, so, uh, so, so it's clear there was, um, you know, they weren't the nicest of, uh, certainly the most pro-British of groups. But they did nothing, and they were, and although they were arrested many times, they were arrested for, for acts of civil disobedience. So the most famous, of course, is when they protested the inaugural lecture by Norman Bentwich at the Hebrew University. Um, who was seen as, you know, a, a member of Brit Shalom, who, and 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 kind of they saw him as kind of selling out, I suppose, the you know to Zionist ideals. So they protested, but they protested as, as individuals. So Achimer was arrested as Abba Achimeir. Perhaps another member of Brit Abirim was also arrested, but they made no connection between these two people. These two people stood up, or three people, or ten people stood up as ten or whatever individuals, not as the group. So the group existed um, only conceptually in a way, and 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 there is very little written down st- uh, documentation that we have about the group. There is the the copy of one newsletter, and that's about it, really. Um, let us move forward in a bit, maybe extending the remit of the immediate remit of your book, and ask you about. Uh, Achimer's uh, uh, influence on the Israeli right. Um, first of all, personally, he was uh, pushed aside by Begin, right? They did not work well. Um, I, I, they were very good friends, from what I understand. But Begin, I think, saw Achimer as a, as a, you know, certainly by 1977, 
as perhaps too risky to, to you know to for for some sort of official political association. Mahmer still had this reputation as a fascist, and in fact, still as you know, people said, okay, he wasn't um, convicted for the murder of Velasov, but they were still suspicious. And I think to this day in Israel, there is a very big divide. And even Begin, I mean, he opened up the case again in the eighties because of this. You know, he finally wanted to put to rest any lingering suspicions. Of course, it's impossible. It's inconclusive to this day the Velasov murder. Um, but but I think that's right. And, and I'd, I think Yossi Achimeyer said to me once that his son, yes, his son Yossi said, you know, Begin always said to Achimeyer, if if I ever get into as prime minister, and this was in the 60, Achimeyer died in 1962, he was, but if I ever become prime minister, you will be the 121st first member of the Knesset. So it was uh, <laughs> kind of, you know, out of 120. Out of 120. So he tried, he put it in a way, he, uh, without a doubt, uh, uh, Begin adopted much of Achimer's ideologies. I mean, certainly, you know, I, I say this in the book, the call, Begin's call in 1938 for the revisionists to adopt military Zionism. You know, he said, forget the time of pioneering Zionism is over, uh, not pioneering, the time of, you know, um, Havlaga and everything is over. It's now time for us to adopt military Zionism. That's nothing more than, in my opinion, a, a, a repackaging of Achimer's revolutionary Zionism from 10 years before. There's nothing different in it. Except the ty- the word. <laughs> and how do you see Achimer's ideology playing out, if at all, in today's Israel? It, it's it's a hundred percent hard for me to say because, first of all, I'm not so inf- familiar from an ideological perspective with what's going on in Israel. But without a doubt, we see Achimer's legacy in the Likud. Um, but but you see a lot of you know you also still see Jabotinsky's legacy in the Likud, although perhaps, many would argue perhaps less and less. Um, I think, but it, also we should bear in mind that uh, Benzion Netanyahu was Achimer's very close friend until until the, the until he died, and so the father of Israel's of, of Israel. That's right. Now. I, that doesn't mean that I, you know, I, I, I have no other um, link to to the two. Be, I mean, I have not looked at any kind of correspondence from the fifties or sixties between. You know what I mean? So it's it's always it's just a it's a guilt by association, perhaps. Um, but uh, but they certainly they were friends. It's a, you know they they were certainly um, very close. Peter Regamin, we've taken uh, a lot of your time already. But can you tell us in closing what project you are currently working on? I know there's a book coming out. Another. There's a book. Well, a book. Yeah, that's right. I've got about 20 pages left to go on the final chapter. I'm writing now a book on the end of the British mandate. It was supposed to be the end of the British mandate. In fact, it's now becoming the whole of the British mandate. Um, it looks at Britain's decision. The, the, the real reason, it, it, the question was to see why Britain went to the United Nations in February 1947 and asked to be released from the mandate. This is quite unique in the history of not only mandatory um, history, but also, I would say, British imperial history. So it's a very interesting question. Um, There are some very, very um, interesting conclusions that I'm about to write in a month or so. (laughs) Uh, And I would say, yes, it's something that was only supposed to look at the last couple of years of the British mandate. It's turned, in fact, into a book that looks at the whole of the British mandate. And I think in that respect, might be not completely useless for for future study. (laughs) Much to look forward to. (laughs) Peter Gamin, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Yakov.